This episode is supported by Manscaped. Manscaped have kindly agreed to continue sponsoring the podcast. You can use our promo code GTM to receive 20% off all products and free worldwide shipping. If you've not heard of Manscaped before, they're now the leading company in male grooming. Their products range from face razors to nose trimmers and their famous lawnmower 3.0, which is a product specifically designed for in and around your never regions, so you no longer have to worry about snagging the bag. As a listener of Go In The Match, you get 20% off and free worldwide shipping with our promo code GTM. Head over to www.manscaped.com to have a look at all their range of products to grab yourself an absolute bargain. Welcome back to the Go In The Match podcast. Today I'm joined by The Athletics and BT Sports, Rafa Honigstein. Rafa is one of the most successful football journalists out there and also a massive Bayern Munich fan. Rafa, thanks for giving me your time today, mate, and come on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I have to correct you straight away. <laughs> I'm not, not a fan. I'm a member. <laughs> Brilliant. Even better. Slightly different. Slightly different. <laughs> uh, I mean, I joke, but it is a different relationship, I think, because you feel that it, this is really your club. They play for you, you know. Um, you're not just a fan sort of taking a liking to it or something. It's It goes a lot deeper than that. Would you say then that's that's a massive difference between German football, the way that they have that mentality and the, compared to other leagues? Don't know about a massive difference, but I think it, it it does create a slightly different relationship because, you know, I can elect the chairman if I feel that uh, Herbert Heiner or Oli Hoeneß before them is not doing a good job, I can vote them out. Now, in theory, because in practice, there's not often a rival candidate and then it comes just down to how many votes they'll get a little bit like North Korea but still there is a degree of accountability and a degree of um, transparency that that people cherish and that doesn't just reduce the relationship to a customer um, you know to sort of a more transactional nature that you just buy to be something of course, you also pay your membership fee, but it's only I don't know, 50 euros a year. Yeah. Um, so it is, it is slightly different. And I think it's different because it's also different because I come from a generation that still witnessed the dark ages, if you will, of German football in the 80s, where there'd maybe in some games be about 8,000 people on the ground. Yeah. Even at Bayern. And football was seen as very uncool not something that a lot of people in the mainstream really engaged with. So we're sort of the veterans of, of those days. <laughs> I think our, yeah. Our relationship is slightly different to football now than it is maybe to someone who's grown up and football has always been this huge booming entertainment industry. It just wasn't the case. It was almost kind of a little bit naff mm. really. Yeah. Okay. So I want you to take us back then to, to your childhood and growing up. Um, being a member of Bayern Munich and so where, where were you born and how did your love affair with Bayern Munich begin? So the, the story is really straightforward because I was born in Munich my dad used to go to the games and with his grandfather so since the 60s they were they were Bayern fans and that's what they did and I just became part of it and uh, and loved it and my brother went as well so there was the four of us and it was a very kind of social thing because in that little block where we were sitting, everyone knew everyone. They were all season ticket holders. Yeah. And it was also a time that if you wanted to bring a friend, you could just buy a five 
German marks standing ticket on the terrace, but then smuggle them into the seating section. And there'd be so much space that it just didn't matter. <laughs> so, um, yeah, just very, very different times. And there would be maybe be one or two games a season that would actually be, be, be sellouts in the Olympic Stadium. Okay. Um, and in the winter, you'd freeze your backside off. <laughs> because the stadium is just not a great football stadium and you're, you're miles away from the pitch um, but there was no option because the game would not be on live television and if you're unlucky there wouldn't even be highlights until 10 at night so, Do you remember anything from the first match that you went to and going to the Olympic Stadium for the first time? Any sort of memories you've got? I don't remember my first one um, it would have been some 1980-81. I do remember a very big game against Hamburg. They were the, the big rivals at the time. And the game was totally sold out. And there was a huge queue in the toilets. And I remember just how <laughs> awkward it was, you know, as a six-year-old, just basically... <laughs> walking through piss I was just not very nice um and um and Hamburg won and they were just an amazing team I just remember thinking wow you know I mean I was very upset that Bayern lost but you'd kind of respected Hamburg because there was such, such a brilliant team at this at the time so that's my first sort of real memory from from being in the stadium and my first memory on watching Stuff on telly is um, watching the 1980 European Cup final. Um, and then slightly more vivid, the 1982 um, European Cup final with Bayern. So who, who were your sort of heroes being at Bayern when you were growing up then? It was uh, Paul Breitner and uh, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge. Okay. Um, they were sort of the uh, dynamic duo of that Bayern team and of Germany. Rummenigge was an amazing player. Um, he was twice Ballon d'Or winner. He was a guy that, you know, on his best was, was on a similar level to Platini and, and these kind of guys. I mean, more, more of an attacker, but his skill on the ball was just amazing. And um, Breitner was this kind of box-to-box Roy Keane-type character who just ran the whole show and was a was just brilliant. And uh, I remember having sort of football boots with Brighton's name on it. And but Rummenigge was kind of the the idol. Rummenigge was the player that played. And everyone wanted to be him. So you touched on before the Olympic Stadium, and obviously now the Bayern Munich are in the Allianz. So obviously that's one of the obviously known now as one of the best grounds in Europe. And what what would you say is like the main aspect that you enjoy, or you think that is like so spectacular about the Allianz now? I mean, I like a lot of things about it. Um, I like the fact that um, it looks great from the outside. It's a very distinct, uh, unique design. It's very modern. Herzog de Moron are just amazing architects. Um, you can play with the lighting. The fact that it's just massive, this red red thing on a mountain just outside and you drive by on the autobahn. It's just cool. It's really cool. It's kind of a statement, you know. Um, but also the, the sidelines are brilliant. I mean, it's it's actually a proper football stadium inside. Um, and, you know, if you, those who have experienced the Olympic Stadium, it's just such a massive 
<laughs> such a massive upgrade. I can't even begin to tell you. So I, I'm really happy. And um, the fact that Bayern have also gone to another level where they're now sort of competitive in European football every year is another, is another huge thing. And of course, that is down to the dance arena because that is it's a real cash cow for them. That's made a big, big difference for them. Um, but that, that wasn't the case in the 80s either. You know, there was very sort of hit and miss. They had a few good years, a few bad years, but there wasn't the same kind of degree of consistency. I think you look at a lot of clubs now, I think off the top of my head, you think of Arsenal, obviously moved to the Emirates and West Ham have moved to the London Stadium. And there was a lot of teething problems when they're moving into a new ground. Was there any sort of issues like that when you left the Olympic Stadium and going into the Allianz or was there not really that much of a teething issue there? No, it was the opposite. Um, Bayern, I think, went unbeaten for, for a year or so and they were really inspired by that, uh, by that stadium. And the difference is that the Olympic Stadium was never their stadium. They were um, renting it. Okay. And there were also other, there was another team playing that it was 1860 and nothing in the stadium said buying. You know, the, the seats were green. It was all very neutral. It was owned by, by, the, by the municipality. So it never felt like, oh, they're leaving their home. Yeah. It was more like you're going from being a tenant to owning your own home. Yeah. So it was a huge sort of psychological lift combined with just much more experience that you got in that stadium. So what's got your thoughts on the difference in atmospheres and the grounds in the Bundesliga compared to the Premier League as well? And, and there's always a lot of talk about how like the fan experience is probably much better in the Bundesliga. You know, you've got things such as safe standard in some grounds and the caps on ticket pricing too. And what would you say is the main difference between the two leagues in terms of atmosphere and fan experience? Well, yeah, I mean, the terraces make a huge difference. It's, it is very colourful. It is, you know, a bit of a spectacle. You have the choreographies, you have ultras kind of being in charge of those areas and, and, and coming up with ideas to, to do something special. Yeah. And the fact that there is standing also has a, has an impact on the demographics because you know people in their late 40s don't want to be standing so it creates this fresh supply if you will of, of young fans who make all the noise and who make a real difference not every stadium is, is super atmospheric and a lot of rival fans would say that the Alianza arena is one of the more quieter stadiums but they have a pretty vote, even they have a pretty vocal ultras section and there's a lot of stuff happening and it's a very different experience to the Premier League. I wouldn't say it's, it's necessarily better or worse because you do get a lot of noise in the Premier League when things happen. But I think with people sitting down, it's almost a case of something needs to happen for people to get on their feet. Yeah. If they're already starting on their feet, then they're much more willing to engage and, and sort of be a part of the spectacle themselves without waiting for, for things to happen on the pitch. So that's maybe the, the biggest difference. And, and I think that um, there, there are moves ahead or foot to perhaps take some of the elements from, from the Bundesliga or from Europe back into the Premier League with, with safe standing and maybe some certain sections. And I think we'll see it happen before too long. 
So Bayern Munich are currently uh, champions of Europe and the world, which obviously breaks my heart as a Liverpool fan to hear that now that you've uh, stole our title. So uh, obviously this is an amazing uh, Bayern Munich team at the moment, but what I wanted to focus on was their manager, Hansi Flick. Um, now, he obviously came into the job when Bayern were struggling a little bit for results. And what, what I wanted to know was, do you think he's the sort of manager who would now build a dynasty at Bayern? Or do you think that he, after Bayern, he would probably go on to another one of the European giants? I don't see him really working at any other club than Bayern. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were lots of stories about him being linked to the Premier League, but I'm not sure how good his English is. Um, this is only his first real job at this level. So I think he's the perfect manager for this particular job, but I don't necessarily see him now being the new Jose Mourinho going forward. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I can't see it at the moment. I think he's more likely to maybe take over the German national team one day and then retire afterwards. Um, I think Flick understands the dressing room. Flick has a very good staff when it comes to the tactical input. But he's not a genius. He's not a managerial genius. Yeah. He's not a Klopp. He's not a Tuchel. Um, but this Bayern team, which is so driven themselves, for them, he's the perfect fit. With a dynasty, I mean, Bayern have been building a dynasty for the whole decade because they've won eight league titles in a row. But for them, of course, the real validation comes in Europe. If he now goes on to win the Champions League again, then we can maybe talk about it. But I get the strange sense maybe that even if that happens, he'll be sort of seen maybe as Zidane is being seen in Real Madrid, a guy who kind of facilitated um, the team playing well. But perhaps you'd you'd struggle a little bit to understand sort of what his real input was. Um, I don't want to be too unfair on Zidane or on Hansi Flick, but I think he he manages the team in the in the in the, in the ritual sense of the word. You know, he just helps the team perform. Um, but the team is not being built by him. The team hasn't been built for him. And I think even going forward, you know, yes, his his ideas will be taken into account, but at Bayern, the club buys the players. Yeah. So I don't think when he leaves, people say, oh, you know, this was the amazing Hansi Flick team. I don't think people talk about it in, this, in those terms. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting dynamic, um, especially at Bayern, where there's always a lot of sort of people behind the scenes with big egos. And um, there's always sort of a political struggle. It's very, very unlike the situation in the Premier League at most clubs. So it's not like a dynasty there. I always, from the outside looking into the Bundesliga, you always see obviously Bayern is so dominant within that league. Um, I have got a bit of a soft spot for Dortmund. I've got got to admit, but obviously Dortmund won the league under Klopp, and that's the last time they were very successful. And do you obviously with Bayern being very dominant in that league, what do you think it is that would propel another team, not even a Dortmund, but you know anyone at Leipzig or Mönchengladbach to? to push Bayern to the limit and then, you know, take a title there? What do you think that could be? Well, I mean, Leipzig hope that Nagelsmann is that factor, that Nagelsmann can do with them what Klopp did with Dortmund, which is just to push a team that is pretty good, but give them that extra 10, 20% that suddenly makes up the gap for Bayern. It cannot make the gap for Bayern consistently because the financial 
difference is so vast that it can never really be be bridged unless the clubs behind Bayern find new ways of, of bringing in money. So Bayern will always have that advantage. And unless they get things really, really wrong, it's very, very difficult. Now, over the last few years, two out of those, they had problems with the manager under Niko Kovac. And this year, you could see that the team is a little bit tired and COVID and the financial issues have have sort of taken away some of the dominance. Yeah. Unfortunately, Dortmund have not been in a position to take advantage for the last three years. Leipzig could just do it this year, but even then it would be an isolated situation because you'd expect Bayern to be, again, the best team next year because their squad is just so much better than anyone else. Mm. So they're in a position where the true challenge almost is, is what happens in the Champions League. It's kind of a expectation to win the Bundesliga. Yeah. And that's a good season, but a very good season is winning is winning the Champions League. And that's where the true challenge lies. And I think they they would almost hope in a way that there had been there'd be more competition domestically. But the financial realities are such that it's just very, very difficult for anyone else. You actually wrote a book in 2017 called uh, Bring the Noise, which is a book on Jurgen Klopp. Um, and obviously, you've been a master rev myself. I just want to know what it was that um, inspired you to write that. Well, it was, it was fairly opportunistic. I mean, Klopp came to England and there were a lot of people saying, you know, who, who's Jurgen Klopp? What has he done? And I found myself writing lots of articles. And eventually, my agent, I think, had the idea of saying, you know what, you should write, write his biography or write a biography because people want to know and I think Liverpool fans in particular um, have this huge demand and appetite to sort of dive deep into personalities especially managers because there's there's such important figures in the history of, of Liverpool and Klopp has a fascinating back history so I felt you know why not why not write it um, I wasn't actually personally that big a fan of his before I wrote the book it's only when I engaged with lots of people who were close to him and when I found out a bit more about what he had done and his background that I actually liked him a lot more yeah than than before and um he is I think in his own ways a brilliant brilliant guy and a fascinating character so it was it was actually a lot of fun writing this book I actually had uh, Uli Hesse um, come on to do a Dortmund episode of me not so long ago. And one of the questions I um, asked him was, did you actually think that, obviously he'd been successful in Germany, but coming over to the Premier League, did you have a feeling that it might not work out? Or did you think it would definitely work? Because I always thought as a Liverpool fan, seeing him come in, I never thought that necessarily he'd win us the Premier League or the Champions League, but I always thought he'd be successful and he'd get us back into Europe. And, you know, as Liverpool fans, we'd been on... Um, a bit of an emo- emotional roller coaster, really, towards mm-hmm. Rogers, but he brought that emotion back. So, did you think he would be successful, or did you have any doubts? Um, I didn't have doubts that he'd be successful, but the question is, what 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 a success look like? Yeah, um, I thought that you know beating Manchester City and Pep, that combination was going to be really really t- tricky, especially with the type of investment not being on the, on the same level. 
Yeah. But of course, I didn't, I think, appreciate just how good Liverpool's recruitment process would be, how much money they would make, how well they would reinvest it, and then how quickly, or more or less quickly, Klopp found a way of making his ideas work in the Premier League with these players. So the, the nice thing was that when the book came out, there was a bit of a dip in fortunes and Liverpool had a few dodgy games and there was again a bit of doubt in, in autumn 2000, 2017. But the kind of hit the success story that it sort of foreshadowed with Dortmund and with Mainz eventually played itself out for a third time. Yeah. Which then gives the book a whole new sort of nice um, narrative arc, if you will, because everything that you see working with Mainz and Dortmund, you then see also working in a slightly different way, but still in a very similar way at Liverpool. And I think now the book is, is a better book for it, but of course it's nothing to do with the book. It's to do with the fact that Klopp has managed to just do it for a third time. Um, but it makes everything else look, look now very prescient and very sort of obvious almost that he would do it. Yeah. So I can imagine you've interviewed some fantastic individuals over the years and players and managers. Have you got any personal favourite individuals that you've come across? Oh, personal favourites. Um, there, were, there were so many interesting people I was lucky to talk to in, in, the, in the process of writing the book. Tough to single anyone out. But um, Christian Heidel, who was the general manager at Mainz at the time, just told the, the most amazing stories and the love he still has for Klopp and for the, what they achieved together shone through. So maybe, maybe he's, he's certainly one of the, the ones that I enjoyed most. But even you know, talking to the Dortmund players about their time with Klopp, to Ika Gunnuan or Nevin Subotic, it was just fascinating listening to players who were so in, in tune and who had this, such a strong bond with their manager because it's not something that you, you come across very often. Yeah. So finally, the podcast is centered around going the match. So with every podcast we're doing, I want to end by asking, what are the top three favorite matches you've ever been to or seen? Oh, that's so difficult. The top three. In no particular order. Oh, that's tough. <laughs> That's so hard. There's so many. There's so many. I mean, from a Bayern point of view, okay, I'm trying to find three different ones. So for the Bayern, from the Bayern one, it was probably the 4-0 against Barcelona, the semi-final in 2013, mm -hmm. which I enjoyed most. Watching Germany win the World Cup in the Maracana. Did you actually go and watch that there? Yeah. Wow, what an experience. What was that whole experience like for yourself then? It was amazing. Um, I'm not the world's biggest Germany fan because for me, Bayern is more important, but I really wanted the players to win it. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of players that I knew for quite a while and I knew how, how important it was to them rather than to me. And I really, really was very nervous and, and wanted them to win it so much. And it was, it was amazing. And thirdly, from a sort of more neutral perspective, if you will, 
recency bias is kicking in here because I'm sure there's games from like 10, 20 years ago that I should mention as well. But off the top of my head, I would say the Liverpool win against Barcelona was such a, just an unbelievable experience with the noise and everything and the, the way that the game went. So if I have to pick, you know, one Bayern, one Germany, one neutral one, that's the top three. If you ask me tomorrow, I'll come up with three different ones. <laughs> I don't think there's a better way to finish the podcast and talk about one of Liverpool's best and brilliant nights. So uh, just before I let you go, just a massive thank you for giving up your time and coming on. I really do appreciate it. Uh, it was my pleasure. If you enjoyed that episode and want to keep notified for future episodes, please make sure you subscribe, follow and share. And of course, leave us a five-star rating. You can now follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, all at Go In The Match to keep updated for future episodes and updates on the podcast.